my fellow Americans, my first and highest duty as President is to defend our great country and the American people. It's time for us to stand up in George's name and say, get your knee off our necks. I am your President of Law and Order. Across the country this weekend, hundreds were arrested in ongoing protests over police shootings of black citizens. I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. Our country always wins. A video went round the world that shocked and sickened. An image of a police officer, Officer Derek Chauvin, now charged with second-degree murder, kneeling on the neck of George Floyd, an African-American man in the United States of America. Millions witnessed a man's life being extinguished and heard a very simple plea, I can't breathe. Protests and in some cases riots have taken place across the US and people across the world have taken part in demonstrations. A throwback to the 60s, throwback to the injustice of Rodney King and the subsequent riots in LA in 1991. However, this is different because Donald J. Trump is the president and this is a very different presidency. All this, of course, is happening in the middle of a worldwide pandemic, which in turn is coming off the back of a shifting global power play. In the midst of this extraordinary time, we ask, what is the future for America? Welcome to the future or bust. And uh, thanks to those who've noticed we haven't been around for a couple of weeks. I wasn't feeling 100%, a lot better now, thank you. And on top of that, we wanted to take a little time out to improve sound quality, getting a little bit of kit sorted for Simon and Will so we can make the listening experience better for you all. Um, Hopefully we've succeeded. Um, Obviously still happening all remotely, so do forgive some of the sound quality at times. Uh, For new listeners to The Future of Bust, we look to the future with an eye on economics, politics, with a tiny bit of prediction. My name's Moz D, and I've been working in the media for decades now. I'm co-founder and director of The Contented Group. Do give it a search. Every week I'm joined by Will Flowerday, uh, an Oxford graduate and a physicist, a business owner and investor. And Simon White, a Cambridge graduate, um, maths is his speciality, uh, who now attempts to analyse the future and the markets with his company, Variant Perception. Uh, you can ask questions, comment using Twitter, the future or bust, uh, OR underscore future, or email us on the FOB podcast at gmail.com. And please do subscribe or follow us on whatever your preferred listening platform is for your pods. Uh, we begin this week with a guest, uh, Ross O'Leary. Ross is a master's graduate in American politics and foreign policy, and he's now a media consultant at a global public relations and strategic advisory firm headquartered here in Ireland, in in Dublin. He's a member of the US Embassy in Ireland's Young Leader Council and a member of the Economic Forum's Global Shaper Community. He's also a contributor to various media outlets, such as the FT, CNN and Indus News. Um, I began by asking him for an overview of the situation in, state, in the States. And, and is this the beginning of the end for Trump? It's a good question, um, and I would like to think so. Um, but I think the, where we're at right now is probably the most extraordinary week I've seen 
in American politics. Um, you know, as you mentioned, there's widespread civil unrest. Um, there's peaceful protests all throughout 50 states, but there's also, um, you know, some uh, over-magnified riots and, and um, examples of looting that a lot of people are kind of playing up to paint the peaceful protesters as, uh, you know, these as civil disobedient, or uh, I'm not sure exactly how to phrase it, but um, I think the backdrop to that is then you have um, President Trump sending in or threatening to send in the military against American citizens, um, which is just absolutely astounding. Um, having the President of the United States clear peaceful protesters by using the military to push through, uh, beat up journalists, shoot journalists with, with uh, rubber bullets, um, and using tear gas on the, the American population, all for a photo op in front of a church where he held a Bible upside down, I think is just astounding. Um, but I, I think it has, to some extent, uh, I think it is entirely justifiable what's going on um, with, with the protests, as you mentioned, but I think it has, to some extent, taking, taken the air out of um, you know what's, what's been uh, taking up all of our lives for the past three months, uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic, um, which has also caused a, a massive uh, worldwide recession and probably a depression. So do I think this is the end for Trump? Um, I, I, I don't know, but I, I would really, really hope that, uh, that it is. Uh, but what I've seen in the last couple of weeks has really worried me. Um, I think the last couple of weeks has vividly depicted Trump's re-election strategy. Um, and now I haven't come up with kind of a, a catchy, uh, you know, five-step program of what exactly this is, but I think it is still fluid. I think um, his COVID strategy um, essentially is that the more people that are infected with the virus, the more people that die. Um, the more people that die, the less people that show up to vote. The more people that die, uh, the more scared people are of actually congregating in public places like um, the ballot box, uh, which then means the less people vote. And Republicans generally tend to do much better uh, with lower voter turnout than Democrats do. So I think two weeks ago, that was going to be the cornerstone of his election strategy. Um, he's also trying to defund the U.S. Postal Service, which means that, uh, you know, potentially an, an overwhelming amount of people will not be able to vote by mail. And typically states that predominantly vote by mail are Democratic leaning states, which might take the air out of out of those races. Um if you had asked me two weeks ago if that was going to be his main strategy, I would have said yes. But now, of course, Trump is peddling a race war. Um, and I think the, the similarities to 1968 in the Nixon um, and the Hubert Humphrey um, presidential race are stark. Um, Trump has wanted a similar race to 2016 for three years now, where he can run as the law and order president. And I think that it, as a result of kind of the, the, the outrage and, and the protests, Trump is using this as an opportunity uh, to, to paint himself as, a, you know, a law and order president for the people, which is essentially what he won on in 2016. So I think all of these different counterparts coupled up with uh, Russian election interference, which is undoubtedly going to happen, is happening right now. It's something I've done a lot of work on. Um, and it's also going to be a lot more advanced than it was four years ago makes the removal of Trump from office an incredibly uphill battle. Mm. Although, you know, numbers, we talk about numbers, I believe that his approval rating is the lowest it's it's been at, at 33%, which it came out across the last, I think, 48 hours. And we're mm -hmm. seeing, beginning to see, 
um, um, a sort of crumbling in sort of Republican attitude. When I say Republican attitude, I'm talking about um, elected members of the Republican Party who would have been um, absolutely forced behind him now coming out and giving even some mild criticism on it. Um, Will, it's interesting what Ross has been saying there, because I think in previous podcasts, you've been saying that, that maybe looking at the numbers, uh, the USA, in talking in terms of COVID now and the way that handled that particular um, issue has been and is handling that particular issue, may not be as bad as is being portrayed by the popular press. Is that still your view? Um, well, I think I think what I was saying in previous um, episodes was was less so the handling of it. I mean, the handling of it has been useless, but the actual impact of it has so far still, apart from apart from five states, the impact of COVID um, has been less in America than a lot of countries in Europe. Um, I mean, they're they're still around half the number of deaths per million, say, um, than than we are than than France is, than Italy is, than Spain is. Um, that's not necessarily good handling by, um, certainly not good handling by Trump because he's done very little at all. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily his, his fault um, that that happens because there's, you know, there's, there's, there's been an unusual pattern across the world and some countries have been very badly hit and some that haven't. So that, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as directing the blame on him or in anything that they've done, but definitely the U.S. is much less affected than some of these graphs that you see um, being portrayed on the media. Mm. And I suppose Ross, um, looking at, and I know that you know you look at media every day. That's what we do for a living. But you know, the, looking at looking at the way he can manipulate the media so brilliantly. Actually, you've you've got to give him credit for a couple of things, and he's brilliant at manipulating the media. That his base would argue firmly against a lot of the propositions that you put forward here on this podcast. I mean, I was listening to other media outlets this morning. There are many people still prepared to defend his actions as somebody who's defending peaceful protest, but at the same time looking to defend um, small businesses and defend the economy against what many people see as, as simple rioters. That's still the case, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think um, one thing that we do have to bear in mind is at the end of the day, um, throughout the uh, three, and a, three and a half years of the Trump presidency, there has been about 40% of the American electorate who have stood by him no matter what he's done. Uh, and let's be honest here, he has done a lot of really, really terrible things. Um, so I, I think those people are, the, you know, the coronavirus pandemic is not going to change their mind. Um, he's going to tell them that the coronavirus offers no harm to them, so they're going to still out. They're going to still get out there and vote. They're not going to be concerned about contracting it um, at the polls. But I think of a uh, from a, a perspective of the Biden campaign, there is a real serious fear among senior staffers at the Biden campaign that, as bleak as the economic turmoil in the states is at the moment, if you know towards the end of the summer in the lead up to the election, there could plausibly be a massive uptick in the economy. Could be massive um, recruitment hikes, uh, employment hikes, um, you know, a, a general uh, increase in the standard of living for a lot of Americans. And that will give Trump a further message that he can run on that, you know, it, for, the la for the first three years of his presidency, he pr presided over this incredible economy, which was all but inherited from uh, Barack Obama, um, 
and if he has that message to run again, run it on again this year, I think that makes the likelihood of a Biden presidency uh, even more narrow. I think there is still room for optimism, and obviously, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm making my own opinion here quite clear, but um, I, I think there's a, a big danger of a massive swath of that of the U.S. population listening to outlets like Fox, Fox News, like Breitbart, um, hearing all of these mistruths and bringing those mistruths with them with them to the ballot box on November 3rd. All right. I mean, I mean Simon, let, let's talk about the economy then and, and Ross's and, and other people's theories. It's even, even been propagated uh, here in the UK, hasn't it, about this bounce back theory. But actually, we're talking about, you know, the biggest economy in the world, Simon. Do you think, just as Ross is saying there, is there any chance that we'd see uh, the USA uh, building an upturn such as the one we've heard described by Ross? It's certainly possible. Um, America seems to be more open to opening up uh, much sooner, certainly than than the UK. Um, you know, as far as I know, I don't think they're entertaining uh, anything like you know systematic fourteen day quarantines in the US. Um, many states never even locked down to the same extent as many European countries did um, in the first place. So they, they've always been, I think, more kind of orientated towards the economy, um, rightly or wrongly. Uh, what that means right now is that they're in a better position to bounce back. Now, I think, like everywhere, it really will come down to kind of two things. It's, it's not just what the government really does in terms of what impositions it puts on the economy in terms of social distancing measures and the duration and intensity of them. It really comes down to what people are comfortable with. You know, going back to our original point, you know, it's, it's about making people feel safe, regardless of whether they're actually any safer. And governments have, all the way through this, it feels like maybe people have felt like they've led, but they haven't. I mean, people in this country and the US and lots of countries went into lockdown before the government told them. And essentially, they came out of lockdown before the government told them as well. So pe people have kind of really, the government has been following the people rather than the other way around. So in the US, as far as the economy goes, um, it really depends on how um, people are willing to get back to their, to their habits. Now, it's very difficult to see, you know, they talk about a V-shaped recovery. And for a V-shaped recovery, what that really means is that, okay, we, we put a sudden stop in the economy. So they, we stopped the economy for a couple of months, but you only get a V-shaped recovery is if all the activity that you stopped comes back, like almost all of it without exception. But even if without severe restrictions, it's quite hard to see how that can happen because a lot of people have been impaired in terms of their attitude to general things, whether it's the amount of people that will be working from home for the foreseeable future, that reduces demand. The amount of people that are quite rightly um, are shielding themselves, so they have not part of the hysteria surrounding the virus, um, the people with you know that have existing conditions, um, they're likely to curtail their spending in, in the US, and it's probably similar in Europe and the, in the UK, like 40% of consumer spending is from the over 55s. And they are not exclusively, but primarily the people that have these um, existing uh, conditions. So they're going to curtail their activity. So it, we're not going to get a V-shaped recovery. It's just almost impossible to see that happening. But we can still get a bounce. And it's very easy to bounce off the bottom. And if that bounce is still sustained when we get into November, then it's possible because it's better than what we had six months ago that that 
um, leans in Trump's favor. But unfortunately, when it comes to Trump, the one thing he's, he's definitely is highly unpredictable. Um, and we really have, between now and November, we have no idea what's going to happen and what he's going to do in response. Yeah, to- look, there's a stake, stick with you, Simon, for, for this initially, and then Will, I'm going to come to you, is this, this idea of confidence, which, again, we've touched on. You know, the size of the United States of America, does it sort of matter what they do, that they're so big, in a way, as an economy, that actually um, the world the world rallies round it, if you will, that we look at it now and it looks, it looks from, you know, the, from a lay person's point of view, watching the nightly news, that there's, it's just in chaos at the moment between COVID, between civil unrest, between mistrust in the president. Um, but is it too big to fail? Simply put, Simon. The US used to be probably in that position. Um, so there used to be an old saying in the markets that um, when the US sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. It's a very apt metaphor today. Um, now it's probably more a case of because the global economy is so much more interconnected um, and it's become that way in the last 10, 20, 30 years is that, okay, the US catches a cold the re- or sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold, but then the US can get reinfected. By the blowback, you know, China is now the second biggest economy in the world, um, and it's hugely, obviously, important to the functioning of the global economy. So this splendid isolation that the U.S. used to kind of have is, is no longer really exists. Um, so I think it's going to be difficult. It is always difficult for if the U.S. is in a recession, say, for the rest of the world to be in a recession. Um, but the level of kind of codependency now between uh, economies and countries is much, much higher. And this is uh, probably the one thing that, if you like, probably does give us you know, hope overall, as much as relations between US and China have deteriorated. Um, you know, the Chinese know that you know, Trump's got an election to fight. So they're, they're understanding that he is sort of part of his strategy is China bashing. Um, so they're, they're probably give him some sort of leeway within that. But you know, there's only so much that um, the two countries can do. They, they can, if, if they both decide to face each other off and take things to an extreme level, then, then both are going to lose. You know, I think I alluded it to um, a few weeks ago, you know, this is like the game of chicken. You know, it's, it's like a very high stakes game. Um, and that's dangerous for everyone else because all you need is one uh, of the participants to make a miscalculation slightly overstep the line, and then we go into the, the worst case scenario for everybody. But, you know, I think you have to be optimistic. Both countries are, are you know, much more than the, the Cold War in, um, in the, the original Cold War between the USSR and, and the West. Then they were, the economies were isolated. You know, the USSR had virtually negligible effect on the rest of the world, certainly the rest of the Western world. But that's not the case today. So there is a case of there is a still a need for mutual cooperation. So, you know, ultimately, I, I think that's what will happen. But there is always that risk of a miscalculation. Yeah. I mean, Will, would you uh, be putting any of your portfolio into American stocks at the moment? Um, well, I've, I've ha- I have done um, back, back in March or so. Um, I think that I think at the moment that the the, the, the stock market and the economy aren't uh, doing the same things at the moment. The stock market has been has been rising quite rapidly um, for almost a month and a half now, 
Um, and obviously the economy is still uh, in, in tatters to an extent. Um, but I think, you know, so, so in some ways the, the stock market is a leading indicator of what's going to happen. Um, and that would, that would suggest a quite rapid recovery, like Ross was saying. But um, in other ways, it's just it's, money has to go somewhere. Um, but I mean, it, in, terms of, in terms of how quickly the recovery is going to happen, I think, I think going back to what I've said before, I think that a lot of countries that have had um, a decent amount of the virus having spread already will be quite surprised at how quickly they can release lockdown and not a lot happens. Um, so, I mean, we can all see in, in London at the moment, for example, or in, in various different parts um, where they've been releasing lockdown and yet infection rates still keep falling. Um, so I think that that's, that's going to be the first test over the next month that they will start loosening lockdown and the virus doesn't really start spreading at any great rate again, which means a lot of the, the release of the lockdown will accelerate. And unfortunately, what that means is that the economy could well be booming towards the end of the year. Not, when I say booming, I mean, it's, it's going to be recovering quickly um, from a pretty low base. Um, and not going back to where it was in January, but it's just that momentum of recovery that uh, could well be there in November. Mm. Let's look um, at again, and I mean, looking at the civil unrest, looking at looking at political change in any country. Uh, will it? It does. Um, it does affect, doesn't it, the way that that um, that country, particular country, is viewed by the world leaders, by the populations across across the planet. Um, and that has got to have some marked effect on the economic well-being of a country and its people. You know, outside of this, outside of this COVID pandemic, outside of the massive civil unrest, that a leader like Trump can have can have a negative effect. Or am I talking nonsense as a layperson? Actually, has he had a, a profoundly positive uh, um, effect? When it comes to when it comes to economics and the markets in the U.S., will um, well, he, some of his policies have had a had a had a very profoundly positive impact on on especially the rich, but on on the on the stock markets. I mean, when he when he reduced the tax rates when he first came in, I mean that had a that was a major boost for the markets and a major boost for the big companies. Um, I mean, there were there there have been there there is plenty of statistics on from him coming in that. Actually, a lot of the most, a lot of the, the poorest people have actually um, done well out of it. Um, you know, so it's it's um, he has had positive effects, but that doesn't necessarily mean I agree with what he's done. I mean, there there are some of those things that he's done that make sense for the economy, but I mean, what he is doing is creating much more division in the country, um, which. You know that that is seen on the news. We see that all around the world in the media. Whether whether people are particularly surprised by it by now, I mean they've been getting used to it by, for four years. So how surprising certain things that he does are is, is maybe more questionable. Mm. And I think that Ross, yeah, Ross talking sort of on a broader level about the states, about the 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 um, the ideals and the narrative. And I know, I know you're very close to this, but the ideals and the narrative that the U.S. has always had—it's the land of opportunity, it's the land of the the brave and the free—and um, that that's that's hugely important to um, uh, its its worldview and the view the view that that, that people have of it. Um, is that I mean that unarguably has been damaged across uh, uh, across the last period? Is 
is that anything that you think that, um, talk about the narrative again, if the only narrative for Trump is the economy, right? Can, can the other narratives be turned up again against him, if that makes sense? That was a, a waffling, waffling question, but do you get what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I think kind of to, to echo what both Simon and Will said, um, Trump's relationships with foreign leaders have, I suppose, largely foreign leaders uh, have maintained close ties with the US, even though uh, Trump has kind of turned his back on traditional allies of the states. Um, and I think from what I've seen uh, in, in media reports is that a lot of these foreign leaders, they know that America is a crucial ally of theirs. Just because there's a president that they may vehemently disagree with, they're not going to risk ruining that relationship. So they're going to, I suppose, keep up appearances in the hope that they can resume a, a relative normality once uh, Trump leaves office. Um, but I think one thing that, that Trump's presidency has really highlighted, uh, you mentioned the idea of, of the American dream and being able to you know, uh, work to achieve uh, what you want. I, I think the reality of Trump's presidency has made clear that the American dream for a lot of people is not a, a, a real recognizable thing. There's so many people living in abject poverty um, while Trump is giving massive tax cuts to the rich uh, that, that angers them. And I think we're seeing that spill over into this the civil unrest that we're seeing at the moment. Um, you know, there was a, a survey released this morning in the FT, and I, I think it said it was 74% of black voters reported a financial hit as a result of the, the coronavirus versus 58% of white voters. So we're going to see those figures uh, over the next couple of months, unless, as Simon and Will both discussed, the uh, we see you know either a V-shape or most likely a U-shape recovery or, or kind of any bounce whatsoever. Um, but I think my main point would be that Trump's presidency has really highlighted that, that I, those American ideals that, you know, the narrative of Amer American idealism has been pushed for so long um, really don't ring true anymore. And unless someone comes in and shakes up the system, not necessarily shaking up the system, but, you know, promoting the change that might actually help those um, underserved sectors of the economy, uh, that won't happen. Hmm. Yeah, you're taking a broader view, Ross, because I think this is really interesting because it, out of all of it, it's the it's the alpha in terms of ideology when it comes to small government, the US, isn't it? Whether whether you're whether you're democratic or republican, actually, it's that's that's the way it, it deals with itself. We're moving into an era, all right, potentially of quite big government, certainly for a while. So I suppose the crux of this is that America, despite itself, is going to have to change, isn't it? All right, forget forget putting labels like you know socialism, democratic, republican, conservatism. There is just a natural case, a business and human case for um, for a bigger government in in most of the developed countries. And I suppose it's it's how that narrative is um, exploited and put across in the US, isn't it? At the moment, it's being drowned out by, by what's going on. Do you think Biden's the man to do that? I think it's a good question. Um, Biden, obviously, uh, there's a, a, a large argument on the left against Biden. 
Um, and there's a lot of kind of Bernie Sanders supporters uh, with the more left wing side of the Democratic Party who who see Biden as, as the old guard, um, you know, the emblematic of, of the establishment that even under President Obama didn't make the, the real changes that, that I just mentioned. Um, but I also think at the end of the day, I would hope that the majority of Americans would see that Biden and a, a Democratic administration, regardless of whether it was Biden or not, would do better for everyone than Donald Trump or a, a, a Republican administration. Um, I think Biden does have a very tough campaign ahead of him um, for the reasons I mentioned earlier on, on, on the Trump side. Um, but also, I, I think largely he is a, a person that believes in incremental change. Um, that doesn't excite a lot of uh, a lot of the more progressive wing of the party, but I think it is a lot more realistic. Um, at the end of the day, we're dealing with American politics here. It doesn't change overnight. Um, and also to address these uh, systematic e economic problems and racial problems, um, you know, social problems, they're, they're, people are screaming out for change. Um, and it, it can be easy to get lost when screaming out for that change, get lost in the notion that it can happen immediately. Um, and I think Biden might be the man, maybe not the man to see all of these, um, you know, these progressive policies and, you know, a broader government um, making a, an America more for the people. But I think he's certainly the person that will steer it in the right direction. Uh, he's been very open about the fact that in un, under a Biden administration, he would bring in the new face of the Democratic Party to kind of carry on in the same direction that the Democratic Party want to go in. Um mm. So that was a long rambly answer, but I no I, no 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 it made sense. Simon, Lend, um, listening to Ross and, and you know all well everyone agrees that that every developed country economy wants to be mates with the US of A, right? We want to be friends with them. They're the uh, they're the biggest guy in the playground, so it, it's good news. But okay, it's good uh, good sense to stay friends with them. But how fundamentally do you think across the next 10 years will that relationship change? You've talked about China, the rise of China. We look at the UK and, and what's been happening with the, you know, the UK are willing to push back against the states now and the relationship with Hawaii and the, the 5G infrastructure, et cetera. Can you see, are we seeing a weaker, more diluted relationship with the US inevitably? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing a kind of, um, a kind of empire in decline, um, and 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 an empire in the ascendancy. Um, so the U.S. is in a decline, and the China is clearly the one in the ascendant, and that's creating all these flashpoints. Um, and interestingly enough, I mean the the pandemic has really just shone a spotlight on a number of these things that were kind of developing anyway. Um, so you have. Um, you know, essentially, China is now much happier to assert its influence, um, and you know it was already doing so for many years in, in the South China Sea, the area it sees as its backyard. But now it's been more assertive, you know, in many different areas, and it's the way politics, uh, you know, geopolitics used to work, because you had to choose uh, which side you were on in the Cold War, right? Did you side with uh, the USSR? Did you side with the US? And you know, you you, you couldn't do both. And the new kind of game is, um, is, is it China or is it, or is it the U.S.? So that in that sense, the, China, China, sorry, the U.S.'s influence is necessarily waning because there's now an alternative. So take, take Saudi Arabia. You know, Saudi Arabia, for 
decades has been basically uh, you know, wound up with the US. They've relied on essentially US patronage, US weapons, US support. Um, but now things are becoming, um, you know, interesting again. Now, Saudi has its own problems. They've obviously got a war in Yemen. Um, they have an extremely generous, um, essentially, welfare state. That You know, the, 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 the House of Saud rules by the consent of the people, and the people basically need big kind of handouts to, um, to essentially placate them. Um, but with the collapse of oil prices, that's becoming more difficult to maintain. So that puts the Saudi fiscal finances under a huge amount of strain. And if push comes to shove, you know, at some point, if the US isn't forthcoming in terms of um, helping them out and supporting them in the ways that they expect to be supported, then they might well turn to China. And in China, they could just basically sell China all the oil it needs, priced in renminbi. And they no longer need uh, dollars. Therefore, they no longer need dollars and they no longer need the support of the US. So we're definitely becoming into a, a more bipolar world. You know, the US basically was a hegemony from, uh, you know, from the USSR's fall in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and now we're, we're becoming in a much more um, bipolar kind of world, which means there's a lot more volatility. Um, and, and interestingly enough, you know, when you have the Neil Ferguson, who's a historian that he was at Harvard, I can't remember where he is now, but he wrote an essay uh, called The Age of Upheaval. And he basically said you need to see three things <clears throat> in place before you get moments of big upheaval in history. First of all is <clears throat> uh, kind of points of ethnic disintegration. There is plenty of them across the world. Um, you know, whether you pick Israel or Palestine, or you pick political conflicts such as China with Hong Kong or internally within the US. You also have empires in decline. So the US, as I say, is an empire in decline. And you have economic uh, a downturn, an economic downturn. You know, we're in the midst of a global recession. You know, as Ross says, it may even possibly turn into a depression. But whatever happens, it's a very deep slump. So you have all the ingredients there, essentially, historically speaking, that turn to great moments of upheaval. And it certainly feels the way that 2020 is, you know, especially with the extra spur of the pandemic. That's where, that's where we are today. Will, is there an opportunity economically for Europe if it gets its act together, to exploit a declining empire, to become stronger in itself, um, and to sort of be a stronger force economically and politically, do you think? I think there, there's always been room for that, um, but Europe needs to get its act together a little bit more and, and actually do that because, you know, Europe, Europe is not like the US and has never been in that it's got, you know, there's a president of the US who is important and represents all of the states. We've, we've, in Europe, we've never really had that, um, and it's still not in, on the immediate horizon. I mean, first, first of all, they need somebody to speak to for Europe. And at the moment, it's still very disparate and you've got um, every country speaking for themselves. So until until Europe unites a bit more, it's 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 maybe a bit difficult for it to compete, whether politically or economically. Um, but, you know, this is this is this is an opportunity um, because it's 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 there's china there's the us and there's europe and you know any anybody could prevail at the moment but uh, at the moment it's looking uh, very towards china mm. ross just just looking to the to the future now i think what some people are saying is that this presidency has damaged the presidency 
um, it's not mortally wounded it, but it's certainly damaged it irrevocably. And what I mean by that is that in future, people will look more to their governors, look more to state rather than, than federal. Is, is there any credence to that in your view? I think so. And I think we're already seeing it, especially in the context of this pandemic. You know, um, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York has become an international superstar. Um, there's a, a movement, a small movement, mind you, but a draft Cuomo movement now of um, people trying to get him to, to run as the Democratic nominee instead of Joe Biden. Um, but I think governors um, across the states are stepping up a lot more than the administration are. Now, I'm not saying that goes uh, across all 50 states. Like we saw the governor of Georgia, I believe it was, open up uh, about three weeks ago, and even Trump had to come out and condemn him. But I think uh, in terms of the future of the president presidency itself, I agree. I think that Trump has very much so damaged the, the seat of or the office of the presidency. I don't think that it's it's damaged forever. Um, that is still a symbol, uh, mind you, a very powerful, incredibly powerful symbol, um, but to so many people across the world. Um, I, I see two very stark um, futures. Now, obviously, there's a lot of things that, uh, that might be different in, in these, but I think under a Biden presidency, we would see he's now touting himself as, as he would be an FDR, a New Deal-like president, um, and even he might he might try and uh, you know promote a New Deal for the entire world to um, reclaim. I wouldn't say America's hegemon status, um, but I think it's its status as the leader of the free world. Um, there will be a lot of uh, a lot of PR work uh, in that if that is the case. I think he, he will try to restore you know American ideals. Um, basically repair a lot of the damage that Trump has done, such as leaving the, the, the Paris Climate Agreement, um, the Iran nuclear deal, and even last week, the, the World Health Organization. Um, and I think domestically, Biden, were he president, um, he will need to step up the plate and not only make the economy work like it did before, but make it better for a lot of Americans. Then the other future I see is a, in the, the, uh, the case of a Trump second term. Uh, I think we can imagine another four years of Trump except completely untethered. So all of the norms, international norms that so many hold dear will be completely shattered. And now this is very bleak. Actually, there was, it was a fantastic essay in, uh, the Atlantic uh, that came out yesterday um, by Thomas Wright, who is a, a, a senior fellow at Brookings. Um, and he called it the final, we're now in the final phase of the Trump era. Um, he, he said the first phase was, you know, when, when Trump first came into office, he had the adults around him that, that reined him in and stopped him from um, going full whack with his campaign promises. And then the second phase was where he systematically rid himself of all of those adults. Um, the third phase he called the reckoning, which I suppose we can consider impeachment somewhat of a reckoning, though it didn't make much difference to his, his uh, approval ratings. And then he says that we're now in the final phase of the Trump presidency, which is um, what many people feared since 2015, which is uh, the crisis and the kind of the, the unraveling of, of America and America's standing in the world, uh, as, as we've all discussed. I think 
were Trump to win his re-election, we would be in a perpetual phase four because there would be no holds barred. He would be allowed to do pretty much whatever he wanted because he wouldn't have uh, that little uh, thought in the back of his head telling him that he needs to keep somewhat of a sense of stability because he's got an election coming up. Um, so I think there there's room for optimism. There's also room for pessimism. I, I think that uh, one of the major problems of 2016 was the overwhelming optimism um, for for Hillary Clinton and people kind of took it for granted that she would be elected. Uh, and what taking you know a, a Biden presidency for for granted would do would take a lot of organizers take their foot off the pedal and um, make the the eventuality of of a, a Trump second term even more likely. You sent a little shiver down my spine, Russ. The thought of uh, the thought of another four years. Will uh, just wrapping up now. Um, I'll come to you, Simon, shortly. But Will, um, ten years from now, and of course, none of us really know. But hey, this is a chat, and we won't hold you to it. But ten years from now, looking into your sort of crystal ball, where do you think the United States will be? I think uh, the United States started its decline. Um, well, if not the 80s and the late 60s, but uh, I, I, I don't see that stopping. Um, I mean, it, it's pretty telling when even after all of this, um, all of all of what Trump has done, what what he's doing, the, the way he is presented, presents himself to the rest of the world, um, you know, we're still talking about he might get voted in. And there's actually a very good chance that half of the people in the US still think he is the best person for president. Um, it, it that doesn't switch or change overnight. Um, so you know, even even if somebody else was voted in, um, you've still got a very divided population, and half of the population have got you know belief systems that are very very different to what um, Europe or even Asia are used to. Um, so I don't I don't really see a lot of upside over the next ten years for the US. Um, I think I think there will be a lot of internalization of you know globalization in reverse certainly where it comes to the us some for good reasons some for bad reasons but you know they they will try to bring some industry back but as well as that they they, they're going to lock themselves out of of a lot more um especially if trump is back in um but you know it's going to take it's going to take something very major um to reverse what has already been happening and what trump has just accelerated um, and even in the midst of all of this, that's not really happening. Mm. Simon, same question to you, really. Ten years from now, again, none of us, none of us really know. But but you know, looking at what you see now, um, and your um, your thoughts on the past and what's happened to the states, what does the future hold for them? Do you think? Well, I think it's very easy to make a, a kind of yeah, very bleak outlook for the states. It feels like all these. Um, Divisions will never be healed, but okay. Since you're asking about ten years, here, here's not an entirely implausible scenario. Trying to be optimistic again, um, so you know, I, I think generally, I would say that um, many of the divisions across, like not just America, but like across lots of countries, have been driven or certainly um, accentuated by social media. You know, never has it been easier for lots of different people to get their views across, no matter how distasteful or no, no matter how niche. 
and and it's really has helped fuel you know many many different protests across the world. I mean, going all the way back to the, the Arab Spring, for instance, lots of uh, different things have been fueled by social media. Now, recently, like last week, Trump attacked Twitter because Twitter basically tried to fact check one of Trump's tweets, and um, he then threatened them with uh, there was a there's an act 1996, the Communications Decency Act, and it's one of the biggest oversights I would say of recent history that the U.S. allowed all the internet companies basically not to be to, to be to be bound essentially by the normal um, uh, obligations that publishers have. Right? They have to be responsible for what they publish. Now he he threatened them with that act. Now ironically, that means Twitter and the, and the rest of it would then have even more obligation to uh, check what Trump and other people put on social media. So if that act, I mean, obviously the media the social media companies, it's one of the worst nightmares because uh, it would massively constrain their businesses. But if we had a, a revocation of that act or these, these companies being um, uh, absent from it, that would make a, perhaps a big difference. You know, if, if, if the whole social media kind of uh, wild west was tamed, yeah. then maybe that might give people a little bit pause for reflection. And we might have a slightly more quieter, less enraged society, not just in the US, but in many countries. I say it's unlikely, but trying to add a little sprinkle of optimism to the proceedings here. Gents, that was, um, that was brilliant. You made it to the end. Thank you. Please do subscribe or follow and leave a review if you can. And follow us on Twitter, the future or bust, or OR underscore future, or please do email us. It'd be great to hear from you on the FOP podcast at gmail.com. Look after yourselves.